0: Um, we're going to be looking at Lord's Day number six in the Heidelberg Catechism. And as is our helpful practice, uh, we're just simply going to begin by reciting the Catechism, and then we'll talk about it a bit and see if we can help each other grow in our understanding of these really actually very foundational truths that we need to grasp in the Christian life. So we are on Lord's Day six, which begins at um, question 16, And runs through question 19. Let me give you just a moment here to make sure you all have it. You people in the back all have hymnals. It looks like you do. Okay. Thank you, Artem. I'm going to call on you today. I don't know when. Just stay alert. Question number 16. Why must the mediator be a true and righteous man? Because God's justice requires that human nature, which has sinned, must pay for its sin. But a sinner could never pay for others. Question 17. Why must he also be true God? So that by the power of his divinity, he might bear in his humanity the weight of God's wrath and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. Question 18. Then who is this mediator? True God and at the same time a true and righteous man. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who was given to us for our complete deliverance and righteousness. Question 19. How do you come to know this? The Holy Gospel tells me God himself began to reveal the gospel already in paradise. Later he proclaimed it by the holy patriarchs and prophets and foreshadowed it by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law, and finally he fulfilled it through his own beloved son. Uh, During our conversations over the last few weeks, we've actually wandered into these topics, and to my judgment, uh, we've done a pretty good job of discussing the first three of these questions already. And so what I'd like to do this morning is to begin on the very last question, which is, about how God has already revealed these truths about God starting in the Old Testament. We're going to talk more about how he's revealed in the New Testament. It is there at the very end of the question in our Lord Jesus Christ. But one of the things that's important for us to realize is when Jesus appears on the scene, he's not simply coming out of the blue. But the Old Testament is looking forward to the coming of Christ from the very beginning, And actually, for that purpose, I want to start very close to the beginning with Genesis 3.15. If you have a Bible, it would be very helpful if you turned there with us. Uh, I want to read Genesis 3.14 and 15 this morning, not just verse 15, so that we can see how the Holy Gospel tells us, and God begins to reveal this gospel already in paradise. And you may know that Genesis 3.15 is sometimes called the proto the first announcement of the gospel in human history. It's really quite interesting. I'll talk about that in a moment. Who pronounces the gospel, who's the first preacher, and who's the first person who hears it. Genesis chapter 3, beginning at verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And I mentioned it's kind of interesting when you think about the first announcement of the gospel that God is the preacher. And he's preaching it to Satan. Adam and Eve overhear it, so they're also among the first people to hear the gospel. But God is proclaiming the gospel, and he's proclaiming it to Satan. It also tells us something important about the gospel. The gospel is not simply a nice announcement. It's good news of a victory. Or as I like to put it, it's the good news of the victory of God in Jesus Christ over Satan's sin and death on behalf of his people. What I'd like you to do this morning, though, is just looking at Genesis 3.15, tell us what we can tell just from this verse about the coming mediator that Christ is promising us. If you go early, you'll get the easy ones. Michelle! He'll be born of a woman, so what does that tell us about Christ? Christ. He's going to be born of a woman, so what does it mean about his nature? He's going to be a true human being. That's a very important truth. So already we're getting this coming mediator, the one who's going to be our champion that conquers Satan on our behalf, is going to be a true human being born of a woman. What else can we tell just from this verse? Hostility. Hostility. Yeah, there's hostility. Actually, there's two pieces of hostility in this passage. One is from the plural seed, if you could take it that way. The word is a collective singular. That is, those who are children of God and those who are children of the devil. There's going to be a hostility. And that gets focused down to a particular hostility between Satan and this seed of the woman, who, of course, we know is Jesus Christ. There's going to be hostility. What else can we tell just from Genesis 3.15 about Christ Christ? We're doing Christology here. It's kind of unfair because I've already said Jesus, so I'm going to give you an easy one. But remember, they wouldn't have known this until God revealed it. He's a he, right? It's going to be a male child, right? He's a he, so a true human being, a male person, who's going to have hostility with Satan. What else can we tell, Ben? It's not costless. Says like you will produce his Yeah, Ben's point is great. It's not costless. There's an element of sacrifice. Uh, We're going to get this all developed in greater detail later in the Bible, but he's going to be the suffering servant. His victory over Satan is going to include him getting hurt. Although I do want to say it's important to note there's not an exact, and I think the translation can be misleading here, an exact antithesis as though Jesus hurt Satan and Satan hurts Jesus. If I was going to translate this, I would say, he will crush your head, and you will bruise his heel. Now, the words used are really the same. It's actually a contextual understanding, but the idea of a blow to the head is it's a fatal blow. The blow to the heel hurts, doesn't kill. What else can we tell? Actually, it's related to that point. There is another very important thing about who this mediator is going to be. This is the hard one. I was going to bring candy today so I'd give it to people got, who got the hard questions right because I've stored it in my freezer. I can't get kids to come to my 55 and older community to trick-or-treat. So, and I don't give it to 70-year-olds. So, um, What's the hard one in here? It tells us one thing about Jesus... Beyond the fact that he's simply a human being. Judy. He has great power. He has great power. He's, he's this, Judy, that's a great answer. He is the son of the woman, he's the seed of the woman, he's a true human being who's also greater than Satan. Now, that does not get you to the fact that he's God, right? Hey, it's only the first announcement of the gospel. But it actually starts to raise questions for which Jesus Christ is the answer. People should be puzzled about how this human being is going to be greater than Satan. Because in terms of power, you are not. In terms of your position with God, of course you are. But in terms of your power, you are not. And this this mediator, who's going to be both son of the woman, is also going to be greater than Satan. That's an awful lot from just one verse. The proto-Evangelion. Any other questions or thoughts about Genesis three fifteen? Michelle, I was wondering about where it says your offspring and her offspring. We you know that the collective offspring is plural, the and then it says her offspring. Is we only the only it that talks about he as a singular. Yes. So there's not there's not really a collective discussion of any other offspring. Woman, just in verse, right? I don't think that's quite true. I think actually that the first use of it is implying that there's going to be a widespread offspring of the woman and a widespread offspring of Satan. However, remember, this is very, very terse. You could read it the way you're reading it. That would be a totally fair reading of it. But, but I think actually the intent is to say both. I might be wrong about that. So just to follow up on that, I think what struck me reading really it is is that already it's really clear that Jesus is the one that loves the work. He's the one that interests Satan, yeah. not the other one who do any of the work. That's correct. And so the reason, why, the reason why I think that it's talking about more than just Jesus and Satan in the first thing is the parallelism, is it's not um, uh, antagonism, between the seed of the woman and you, Satan. The first one is this, the seed of the woman and your seed. And so the seed of Satan are those who, in their worldly sense, are going after Satan's ways. And Jesus calls them children of the devil. And so I think those are both plural. But it becomes very clear that the one who delivers the victory, as Michelle says, is in fact the singular seed and described as he. So it can't be plural. Judy. Well, the other thing is it's a comfort to that it's a reality, a concept or a set of philosophical principles. This is a human who has power and it's tangible and real. Yeah, Judy, that's really important. This is, this is, these are realities that are going to take place concretely in history. Um, Sometimes Christians get confused on this, a lot of people get confused on this, but sometimes even Christians do. We often talk about comparative religions. That became very popular in the 19th century, still very much with us. It can be really misleading. So people will say, well, there's Buddhism and Christianity, but they're totally different from each other. Buddhism is actually a philosophy of life. Christianity is based on historical things that God does in history that are concrete. Uh, to give you a, a, a real push on this, if the first Buddha never existed, that would have zero impact on Buddhism. You could hold to the same philosophy, it would make no difference. If Jesus didn't live and die, as the Bible tells us, it doesn't matter what you believe. You are still dead in your sins. And so the good news, as Judy points out, is that God actually acts concretely to deliver us as his people. Let's move on just a little bit. Um, There's an enormous amount of passages, so I'm I'm being, I I can't even say selective. Um, I'm being super selective here. Uh, There's a great deal of passages among the patriarchs, for example, that talk about, you know, the scepter not uh, departing from Judah, and so on, and the sacrificial system, and we see this in Genesis 22, with Isaac being a pointer to Jesus, who dies on the mountain for the sins of his people. Many, many things, But I want to jump forward all the way to the Davidic Covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. just invite you to look there with me. And we're going to be looking at verses 12 and 13 in particular. Now you remember the scene. David has had a deep desire to build a house that is a temple for the Lord. You know, he's looked around at his own house and he's got settled. And he goes, look, I'm living in a palace of cedar. And the ark of God, the true king of Israel, is in a tent, you know, behind curtains. I want to build a house that is a temple for the Lord. And God says, David, you will not build a house for me, but I will build a house that is a dynasty for you. That's the context here. Picking up in 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your father's, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, once again, we're told that this offspring of his seed will come from David's body. Just like as we saw in Genesis, that points to the fact that the coming Messiah is going to be a true human being at first blush we might think that this promise is fulfilled in solomon right solomon's going to build a house for the lord uh, but then we realize when it says that he's going to reign forever that that can't possibly refer to solomon right it becomes clear by the end of the verse that someone greater than solomon is in view for the lord is promising i will establish the throne of his kingdom forever now one of the interesting things about this promise which is a promise of an eternal king with an eternal throne is that this messianic king will also build god a house that is a temple so my question for you is how does that happen does the messianic king build the temple by the way it was commonly thought in the first century in Judaism that when the Messiah came, he'd build a temple. We actually know from um, figures a little bit later than Jesus, from those who didn't accept Jesus as the Messiah, for example, Bar Kokhba. Bar Kokhba minted coins, and part of his imagery was... Oh, by the way, think about the chutzpah of Bar Kokhba. He minted them with the year one on them. We're going to redate the calendar to me, the Messiah. But what he put on there was a rebuilt temple. Because messianic expectation was the Messiah would build a temple. My question for you is: Does Jesus do that? Yes. yes. Ray, how does Jesus do that? He established the temple in our hearts. In your heart. Close, but not correct, Peter.
1: He says of his own body
0: that he will destroy this temple and rebuild it. Every day. Yeah. So Peter points out that Jesus says destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. And, of course, they're thinking about the temple grounds. He's actually talking about the temple of his own body. And he does raise it up, but that is not what I was thinking. So you get credit for being correct, but you miss out on credit for not knowing what I was thinking. Yeah, uh, Scott. First Peter saying living stones. Yes, so Scott points out that we are living stones in the temple. The temple that Jesus is building is his church, which is, in fact, a house for God. God dwells in his church. So I I, know you said in his heart. The temple is not in your heart. I know you've listened to plenty of evangelical music that says it is. But, But you individually are a temple of God, but actually, more importantly, in the image of the Bible, you are a stone, and we collectively, the whole church, is a temple of God, and Jesus Christ is building his church so that the gates of hell will not stand against it. Let me bring up a related passage to this one. Oh, go ahead, Ben. I'm just wondering, because in the old covenant, there was a physical temple, but there was still a church, so is there a parallel to that construction? Of still church. So Ben's question is, is there a parallel since there's a church in the Old Testament and a physical temple, and what he's trying to get at is Ben thinks that in the coming millennium there's going to be a new temple built in <laughs> Jerusalem. Oh, no, no, that is not what Ben means. That is not what Ben means. Actually, Ben, ra- ben is raising a very important question, and, and the issue with the, old te- the shift from the Old Testament to today is precisely at this point. The Old Testament uh, saints had a temple they went to, even though they were the church. The church, as it comes into the New Covenant era, is the temple. There's a huge amount of background in the Old Testament about the problem of how can a holy God dwell in the midst of a sinful people. And so, in one sense, the the, uh, temple with the Holy of Holies in it is... um, an extraordinary blessing that God had a way of dwelling in the midst of his people without consuming them as a stiff-necked people. But it was also a barrier. Only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies once a year. And you in the new covenant era have a much greater privilege because of Pentecost. You live on this side of Christ actually having come and put away our sins so that God himself is with you. And whereas the, holy, uh, the uh, high priest in the Old Testament can only go into the Holy of Holies, one day a year, offering sacrifice both for himself and for the sins of the people, you can go into the presence of the living God every single moment of the day. In fact, God dwells in you. Because Jesus has come and offered himself, and he has completely put away your sins. So there's, there's a difference here, but structural, that says, in the Old Testament, the church had a temple. In the New Testament, the church is the temple. You can't push that entirely to 100%. That's like a 96, 97%. There's always a bit of fuzziness and overlap on how the images work. But I think that'll be a helpful way to think about it. Did you want to follow up on that? or I'd like you to look at Psalm 110 with me. Now, we're going to look at Psalm 110 a bit tonight. Um, tonight, I'm going to be preaching on, Lord willing, or Elder Bacon is, one or the other, on um, Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7 is a detailed study and meditation on Psalm 110 and what it tells us about Jesus, particularly Jesus as a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. But I do think it would be helpful for us to just say a few things about it right here. Psalm 110 is a short psalm. I'm going to read the entire psalm and then we'll come back and just look at verses 1 and 4. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So look back at verse 1 with me. By the way, this is the most quoted verse in the New Testament. I would call that trivia, but it's actually kind of important. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Does anyone remember how Jesus draws attention to this verse? The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Artem, yes, thank you. How does Jesus draw attention to this verse? Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool to get them to think something about him. Any ideas? Oh, that was tough. Yes, Jeff? Well, it's, uh, it's not verse your You ask them about this. Him the exactly. So Jeff points out, he's, he's talking to the the these religious leaders, and he's saying, "How is it that David, the great king of Israel, calls one of his own descendants Lord?" The word here is Adonai. Right? So how does Yahweh, right? Yahweh says to my Adonai, right, my Lord. Um, how, how is how is the Lord calling David's son? That's Yahweh calling David's son, David's Lord. That makes no sense in Judaism. In Judaism, the father, the patriarch, is always greater. Right, The greater honor goes to Abraham over Isaac, Isaac over Jacob, and so on. And David is the great messianic king. So he asks him this puzzle. The Lord says to my Lord, how is it that he calls him Lord when he's David's son? And what's the answer? You know the answer. Jesus. His son is Jesus. So, what? What about Jesus allows Jesus to be David's lord, even though he's David's son? No. Well, what is it about Jesus? I'm asking that question. The lord of lords. <laughs> yeah, but how, what, what's it, what's it, Michelle? He's pre-existent. He's pre-existent. In fact, he's God. He's both son of David and son of God. Therefore, it's appropriate. Yes, you guys are on the same page. Therefore, it's appropriate to call. Uh, for David to call him his Lord. Now, when you're reading Psalm 110 in, let's say, 800 B.C., you wouldn't have known that. But you've got to read the Bible this way. They they didn't get the Bible just dumped on them. What it would have done once again is raised a question for which Jesus Christ is the answer. They ought to have been puzzling over that. How is it that David's calling him Lord? I don't get that. Oh, when Jesus comes on the scene, now I get that. But that's the way it's intended to work. Uh, I should note, by the way, in this, it says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That tells us something else about the coming Messiah. It tells us that Yahweh is committed to making all of the coming Messiah's enemies humbled under Christ's feet. Right? Or read the book of Revelation. Jesus wins. That, that's actually an important truth about this coming Messiah. He's not coming simply to do something nice for Israel. And in fact, he's not coming simply so that their sins will be forgiven. He's coming to trample their enemies under his foot. All of his enemies. And all of your enemies as well. Right? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. once again, the psalm raises questions for which only the coming of Jesus Christ gives us the answers. But I'd like you to look down to verse 4 with me. Verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Why is that so striking? I should take notes here. I'm preaching on this tonight. You got some good ideas for me? It would be really helpful. Right. No priest in no, the priestly line was, was forever. No priest in the priestly line is forever. That's incredibly important. The Author of Hebrews makes the fact that they had to keep being replaced because they keep dying. By the way, even if they didn't die, they weren't going to be priests forever. They age out at fifty. Right? You had to be twenty to fifty or thirty to fifty, sorry, to be a priest in uh, serving the Levitical priesthood. Right? You had twenty years, it wasn't that long. So this priest is gonna be a priest forever. What else is kind of unusual about it? Jeff. He's both king and priest. Remember in ancient Israel, there is a type of separation of church and state. I mean, they're the same people. They overlap. But all the kings had to be of the tribe of Judah. All the priests had to be of the tribe of Levi. By definition, they had to be separate people. And God is saying, yes, but when I send my Messiah into the world, he is going to be both... Eternal king and eternal priest. And that's, of course, the point going back to Melchizedek, who I happen to think is a pre incarnate appearance of Christ, but whether you take it that way or not, the point is he is both king and priest, and God is swearing he will be a priest forever. Right? So that, that says an awful lot about this coming mediator, a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Any other questions on Psalm 110? I think you remember you to be teaching us what So it must have been right. <laughs> but wait, I think you remember when we talked about the and you were pointing out how Abraham gives honor to Melchizedek, mm-hmm. right? And so even though Jesus, by birth, is coming from the tribe, like coming from the children of Israel, like this verse kind of puts him outside of that as well like as far as the priestly border. So that he's also over Abraham? Yeah, so Michelle's point is that Abraham offers ties to God by giving them to Melchizedek. And as the Bible does make clear, um, that's something that the lesser offers to the greater in terms of prestige. That is, Melchizedek, in a sense, is above Abraham. Now, in my take of it, that Melchizedek's actually a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ, that makes good sense it makes clear that Abraham was offering up his ties to God through the Son of God, right? And of course, even if you don't take it that way, it's very helpful to realize the coming mediator is not going to be simply somebody along this long line who happens to be a really good priest and a really good king. He's of a different category of priest and a different category of king. Let's look at Isaiah. I want to look at Isaiah chapter 9. This is one of the most famous passages. You all know this because we read it every single Christmas at some point. Uh, sometime in December, we're going, to, we're going to hear this passage read. Um, Isaiah chapter 9, beginning at verse 2. And I want to read through verse 7 this morning. But realize this is all building, right? Psalm 110 is earlier than Isaiah. 2 Samuel is earlier than Isaiah, and we're starting to think, let's flesh this out a bit more. Who is this coming mediator? Isaiah chapter 9, beginning at verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoiced before you as with joy at the harvest, As they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood, will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. Well, obviously, there's way too much in here for us to cover in the remaining time in the Sunday school class. So, I want to narrow down our focus just a little bit. Uh, We do see, again, that he's going to be a true human being. Uh, You may be wondering why I harp on that point, but I've discovered that many Protestants in America tend to think of Jesus as God who appears to be human. In fact, the Bible makes the point very strongly that he's a true human being. Fully man, fully God. And we get that, of course, because unto us, a child is born. But he will also be true God. Now, even more explicitly than we've had before, we actually have his names. And one of his names that the Messiah is going to be called is Mighty God. Now, would a Jewish person imagine that that could be someone other than Yahweh? The God who says, I will not share my glory with anyone. No, so he's going to be a true, true man and, a, and true God. Not a true God, the true God. Right? Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Isaiah is saying the future Messiah will explicitly be called mighty God. In fact, he probably means that with the expression, a son is given. It's a little more debatable. Right, But the idea of a child being born is from our perspective. We see this true human being. A son is given is really coming from God's perspective. Son of man, son of God. I think that's probably the better way of reading it. God is giving his own son for the life of the world. And what a great encouragement the faithful remnant must have felt every time they heard verse 7 read out loud. Because this coming mediator is not simply coming for himself. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it, with justice and righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Now you might be thinking, well, Isaiah 9 doesn't tell us everything. Because we've already heard things, like all the way back in Genesis 3, that Satan's going to bruise his heel. And Isaiah says, look, i got a big book for you. Read ahead. And think about what we confess every Sunday morning when we come to the Lord's table from Isaiah 53. It tells us that this coming mediator is going to be the suffering servant. Who will live the life that you and I should have lived and die the death that you and I should have died. Isaiah 53, a little more than we recite here on Sunday morning. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds... We are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned aside, everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Right? We're just scratching at the surface and we realize there's an enormous amount in the Old Testament that tells us what this coming mediator, whom we know is Jesus Christ, is going to be like. I want to give you just one more. I, got, I think I have time to do this. One more Old Testament passage. This is from the prophet Malachi, which is the very last book in the Christian Old Testament. By the way, if you don't know this, Jews order their canon differently, which is fine. But the last book in the Jewish Old Testament is 2 Chronicles. So the Jewish Old Testament ends with Cyrus giving his decree to rebuild the temple. It's very important to Jews. But chronologically, the Christian ordering makes more sense, and it ends with Malachi. Now, I want you to look at Malachi chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Let me give you just a second to get there. Malachi chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. This is the Lord speaking. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So here's my pop quiz for you. Who is the messenger whom the Lord is referring to in verse 1? God's going to send his messenger. We, We know the name of that messenger. Who is that messenger? John the Baptist. That's the easy question. Who is God going to send John the Baptist as a messenger before? Me. Not Martha. The Lord. The Lord says I'm going to send my messenger before me. Who does John the Baptist come before? Jesus. You can do the math. Jesus is Yahweh. That's what it's saying. God himself is going to come, Yahweh the Lord, and he sends the messenger before himself. So when Jesus shows up, as people meditate upon Malachi, they ought to make this connection. Now, we want to be very kind to them. We miss a great deal, and we're on this side of the second coming. We've got a whole new covenant. New, we got the New Testament. So it becomes really clear for us. But I want you to realize it's in there. If you meditate upon the Old Testament scriptures, you actually know a great deal about what the coming Messiah is going to be like. And there are things that we haven't even scratched on today, like the sacrificial system, how it points forward to them, and the Old Testament priesthood, so many other passages. Ray? I makes basically think about how many times in the New Testament that Paul says that when he went into the synagogue to prove Jesus also on the road to Emmaus spoke to them from the Old Testament, right? Yeah. It would have been really nice to know like what passage was he really referring to. Obviously, yeah. Yeah. So Ray 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 points out that the the apostles and Jesus himself, they don't simply say this is the conclusion they go back and they announce that this is what the Old Testament says. We get that all through Matthew, this was to fulfill what was written by the prophet, right? We get that over and over again. Uh, but Ray raises an interesting question, which is, Jesus went on the Emmaus road with the Emmaus disciples, and he opened up the Old Testament and explained to them how it taught about him. Don't you wish we had that? And I'm going to tell you that we do. It's called the New Testament, Right? That these are not things that were lost. We got all that taught to us in the epistles that the apostles later write. right? So we don't actually have the story and the order in which he approached things, but there's plenty there in the New Testament and that's what Jesus was doing to the Holy Spirit. We have not missed out on that story so that it would be better for us to have walked the Emmaus Road than it is for us to be in the 21st century having a completed canon of Scripture and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. We are in a Better position, even than they were. There was another question. Yes. So reading is this looks like it is one of the pieces portion. Yeah. So there's a lot of truth in Handel's Messiah. I remember actually. Uh, this guy was a dispensationalist too, so he had a very he had a very dispensational crowd he was speaking to. And he was talking about the reign of Christ. And he was talking about he spent a lot of time talking about the millennium. And then toward the end, he had this, there must have been four or 500 of us there. And he said, so how long is Jesus going to reign? And people said, a thousand years. He goes, haven't you listened to Handel's Messiah? He shall reign forever. Of course, that's not from Handel. That's from God. He shall reign forever. Well, of course, the catechism finishes here. It's only hinting. We're going to talk about this more in the future. But it finishes by pointing out that ultimately we see this when it's finally fulfilled by God through his own beloved son. So I want to close simply by reading um, a portion of Hebrews chapter 1 for you today. The Old Testament is all building up to this, but here's the climax. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets And his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteous uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe you will roll them up. Like a garment they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. To which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who will inherit salvation, and beloved, what I hope you heard is that passage was read in your hearing is other than the introductions, like to which of the angels has he ever said? Everything else was quotations from the Old Testament. Now we're so blessed that we have God Himself has brought them together for us, so we can see it clearly. It would have been much harder if you were living in 600 BC, but it was all there from the very beginning. Ben. So, when we read all those texts together, was there any tradition in Judaism that thought of the Messiah as God? Like, has like yeah. So Ben asked a tremendous question Was there any tradition in Judaism which thought that the coming Messiah would be God? And the answer to that question is yeah, probably. There, there's not a really clear, like, Writing a systematic theology example of it, there is a famous rabbi whose name escapes me, maybe Silas remembers who this is, um, who uh, prior to the coming of Christ did talk about there being more than one person in the Trinity, and these sorts of texts led to it. It was only after Christianity comes and becomes established that the Jews want to redefine, or more narrowly define, their view of um, God's oneness to rule out that he could have more than one person. So these texts kind of pointed in that direction. There was not, however, at the time of Christ being born, to the best that we can tell, a widespread belief that the Messiah would actually be divine. And keep in mind, most Jews had lost the thrust of what the Messiah was coming to do. They were looking for someone like King David, who, instead of overthrowing the Philistines, was going to overthrow the Romans. Michelle. Uh, just real quick, I'll share so personal
1: testimony that.
0: Um, having a father who was raised Jewish and then was saved uh, and became a Christian. Um, most of our Jewish family does not leave, like you said, they've just lost it. It's just lost in tradition. But then there's another whole group of Orthodox Jews, many of whom have returned to Jerusalem. But if you can get one of them alone and engage conversation, we've, we've done this once. My dad and I have been able to just find some of these. And I'm really excited about the Malachi 31 because we have not ever been able to use that in conversation. But using all of the others and talking individually with somebody who thinks like this and with dreams all this and watching their world just turn all of a sudden on axis to realize that all of these things are met in Christ. Yeah. That is an amazing privilege. And so I see my dad like, Make very because a lot of like yeah. that, the eye of It's really it's wonderful, and I would just add that one of the things for all of us, we are not called to convert people to Christ. We're called to be witnesses to Christ. And one of the best things you can do with someone that um, is trying, so as Michelle pointed out, most Jews, if you start talking to them, they're going to, they're going to talk about the Holocaust. They're actually not going to want to talk about the Old Testament, right? But if you have those Jews who are interested in what the Bible has to say, if you can simply get them to read a gospel and say, hey, listen, you know, I just want you to understand what what we believe. Would you read Mark with me or would you read John with me? And now they have that turf where they can start going, it does seem like this is matching up. And they read all those places in Matthew where it says, this was to fulfill Isaiah or this was to fulfill Jeremiah, and they can look at the passages. It's a a beautiful opportunity for us. Um, John, would you close in prayer?